0: Hi everyone, this is Sandy Varatharaja, co-host of the Pulse podcast. I'm coming at you live from Wharton's Healthcare Business Conference 2020 here in Philadelphia, and I was able to catch up with Abner Mason, who is the CEO of Consejo Sano. Abner was here presenting on a panel about the social determinants of health, and specifically about Consejo Sano's growth. Consejo Sano was founded in 2014 and is the only patient engagement solution designed to help clients activate their multicultural member populations. Abner has had an incredible career in healthcare and has held several leadership roles, including at the Workplace Wellness Council of Mexico, the AIDS Responsibility Project, the US Presidential Advisory Council on HIV-AIDS, to which he was appointed by President George W. Bush, the Government of Massachusetts, and Bain & Company. Hope you enjoy the episode. area really excites you when you think about new frontiers in healthcare?
1: I think there's an exciting period of of experimentation that's about to happen where plans are actually going to put dollars behind their efforts to address social determinants.
0: Yeah. One thing you mentioned in your panel was that by 2050 the U.S. will be majority minority and that we need to start thinking from a systems perspective about cultural determinants of health. So how is Consejo Sano targeting that problem and how does how is that different from how payers traditionally approach the problem?
1: Our country has changed and it's it's really dramatic demographic change. Uh, for example, California is now a majority minority state, so is Texas, and the whole country as you noted will be majority minority by 2050. That is dramatic demographic change. And not everyone in America is prepared to embrace it. Now the problem is healthcare hasn't kept up with the demographic change. And I think it's fair to say that our healthcare system today is not equipped to serve the America that we've become. What that results in for, for people is poor health outcomes and for society, higher costs. Now, the way the healthcare system has currently addressed that problem is translation. You know, plans and providers, they look at their membership or they look at their patients and they're like, wow, they look really different. They're all, they come from all these cultures and we need to still engage them. So what should we do? Well, let's just take the message that we would normally give to an English speaker, a traditional English speaker, and we'll just translate it across 13 to 14 different languages. That's the 1.0 model. It's translation. And the reason it doesn't work is because... Translation is really just a one-size-fits-all solution. What we have found is that if you treat people as though who they are, doesn't matter. You will not build trust, and you won't be able to engage them, and you won't be able to then navigate them into care at the appropriate times and appropriate places. We have developed what we call a 2.0 model, which is to say, let's start with who people are. We built a technology platform that allows us to collect a lot of data, public data, private data, claims data. We add to that a deep expertise that we've developed on our team. We hired people who understand the way Americans consume healthcare, the way they live their lives. And that allows us to do something we call micro-segmenting the population based on culture. So we create cultural cohorts, much smaller groups from the larger group. And then we create content for that smaller group, that cultural cohort. And then we add language. So it's interesting. Language for us, people think, consider us we're about language. It actually is not what we think of first. First, we think of culture, who people are. And then we think, okay, let's design content based on who they are. Then we add language, because language is just a tool. It doesn't tell you what to say. It's just a tool to say something. And then finally, we think that the mode of communication is really important. So if you are sending mail <laughs> to, uh, to Medicaid recipients, that's not the way they prefer to be engaged. And so that process, a four-step process, you start with culture, then you design content based on culture, then you add the appropriate language, and then you communicate that message in the way the member or the patient prefers. If you take that approach, you will get results. You'll build trust. And so we call that the cultural determinants of health. Um, And we think that encompasses the social determinants because people of different cultures respond to the same challenge in life differently. And if you can, in your communication, honor their humanity, you can build extraordinary trust because that message sounds like it's coming from a friend or uh, their mother or someone they trust.
0: Yeah, I think you bring up an incredible point around translation not being enough. One example I've run into in my career is around diabetes patients who are in multicultural communities and thinking about Simply like recipes for them to cook and a recipe of like roasted broccoli may not work for a lower income Haitian immigrant who lives in Crown Heights or a Bengali resident in Jackson Heights. They need literally different content. Another point you raised that I found interesting was targeting communities that are historically disenfranchised from our system overall it must be difficult to find and engage with them in the first place. So how does Consejo Sano find those patients in the first place? Because payers struggle with that too. Yeah,
1: it, it is a struggle because a lot of times figuring out where people are is a challenge in the Medicaid population. But what we found is that there are strategies you can use to increase the number of of accurate addresses and accurate phone numbers and it ranges for everything from like we'll get a plan um and and a lot of their numbers uh because they get the number from the state when the person qualifies for medicaid it might be a landline simple thing but a lot of plans don't do that then once you figure out which are landlines you want to try to get a mobile for those folks. And so we have partnered with, for instance, some other aggregators like TransUnion, who if you can give them two pieces of data on a person, they are pretty good at, at, at finding out a correct address or a correct mobile phone number. Then a little, little thing is even once you've identified landline versus mobile and you have the mobile numbers, frequently the plan will think because they try the mobile number and don't get a response that they don't try again. And what they are failing to understand is that a lot of people in the Medicaid market, they buy minutes per month. And so depending on when they get income in the month, they buy new minutes. Just understand who the population is and then engage with them in that way.
0: Yeah. One central theme we've been talking about a lot is representation and inclusion. And you mentioned very briefly on the panel your personal experience, not only leading a company, but fundraising. What has that experience been like for you?
1: Yeah, so I'm African-American. So when I first started this journey to... Ray Series A, two striking things that I found. One was that almost every investor I met with was white male. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. It's how how consistent that was the case. And I'm talking about, you know, 100, 150 investors. I guess it's three things. So the second was that I was trying to fund a company that was focused on meeting the needs of multicultural people. And this is probably, you know, I don't want to criticize them for this, but I think investors tend to invest in what they know. Or what they can experience or what they have some ability to assess and and typically your best assessments comes from things that you know or people that you know know <laughs> and so I was talking to people who didn't understand the experience of, of of being multicultural in the US they hadn't engaged with the health system as a multicultural person so they they didn't fully understand the problem and and a third was that uh, because we were also trying to build a solution that was for the Medicaid market, no big surprise here. Most investors aren't low income. They didn't fully understand the size of the Medicaid program, the impact of the program, its importance to the people who use it. I do think that's changing, and, and investors now realize this is the largest health plan in the country with a $650, 670000000000 a year annual spend and rising and that it's incredibly inefficient like the rest of healthcare so there are huge opportunities for uh, disruption and innovation and right now most investors i think they they really have uh, blinders on when it comes to understanding just how diverse our, our countries become
0: Shifting back a little bit towards outcomes, sure. you mentioned on the panel that it's fairly easy to measure ROI of your payer partnerships because they hand over the highest risk, hard to reach members to you and say, go close their gaps. And there are very standard clinical and quality metrics to measure that. So what have outcomes looked like for the patient populations you're taking risk?
1: In the early days of Consejo Sano, I think this is changing, but in the early days of Consejo Sano, people came to us when they tried everything else. Nothing but they, they would... We would Clients would come to us and they could list eight different things they had tried and nothing had worked. And they finally came to us because we were new and they didn't know of us before. We're excited because now, as opposed to us being you know, the ninth thing that, that plans try, plans are trying us first. It's, and it's a pretty cool place for us to be now.
0: Who are some of your major payer partners?
1: I'd say, and I'm always grateful to them because uh, I know this is a podcast for Wharton and, and a lot of the students want to start a business. And when you're an entrepreneur, there is nothing more important, and nothing that you'll ever be more grateful for than your first big client. Because it—that that is the thing that changes your life as an entrepreneur. And so our first big playing client was Blue Shield of California. And to be honest, I still look back on it and wonder why they... (laughs) Why they were willing to uh, to trust us? I think it may be because they had tried everything else, and they were like, you know, we got to try something different. It's kind of a chicken and egg thing that plans won't work with you unless you worked with another plan. That's kind of the way it is. And in healthcare, if you don't work with the plans, uh, it, 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 there are a few exceptions, but typically, if you don't work with the plans, you're not going to grow very big. And so, how do you get your first plan if that if plans won't work with you if you haven't worked with another plan? So it's really you got to find that unique client who believes in you enough, that plan, that they'll say, we'll contract with you. And that was Blue Shield of California. And so I will forever be grateful to them. But we now have a, a, a Healthcare Services Corporation, which is based in Chicago. They're a, a big blue plan. They actually own the blue plans in five states. And then Tufts Health Plan, uh, we love them. And just signed our first big uh, public plan in California. And we just went, went, went live with them uh, last week. And that's the health plan of San Joaquin. But I'll just emphasize again, that first one made all the difference because uh, if you don't get that first one and if you don't get them soon enough, because, you know, you're burning every month, you're, you're burning cash. And so, you know, when you're when you're venture backed, you have got to produce results and you got to get that first client who's willing to, to, to trust you. So uh, uh, we were lucky we were able to, to pull that off.
0: That's incredible. I think Conseil Osano has clearly had a lot of momentum. And I know you celebrated your five year birthday last year. Yes. So happy birthday. Thank well, you. Any parting words on what you think the next five to ten year strategy for the company is?
1: Sure. So I think for us is to is to uh, build on what we have learned so far. Today we're serving 1.3 million healthcare consumers across ten states. There are two different tailwinds that are pushing us. One is the regulatory changes that uh, regulators are saying to plans, particularly in Medicaid, but also at Medicare Advantage, you have got to engage your members. In the past, there wasn't pressure, and you could kind of, plans could skate and not engage, and, and they could, could get away with it. But because of the cost of, of these programs growing and the impact on health, regulators are saying to the plans, you have to engage your members. You've got to get those babies vaccinated. The other thing that's really uh, helping us as a tailwind is plans are really investing in digital health solutions. But here's the thing. No matter how beautiful your, your diabetes solution is, If you can't get people to use it, if you can't engage the member and get them to use that new solution, even though it works and it's beautiful and it's effective, all those things, you're not going to get the value out of it. And so plans are starting to realize for them to get a return on investment on their other digital health investments, they've got to spend more money on engagement and they've got to figure out how to engage people who are very different. How do you get, you know, someone who who culturally is very, very different from, you know, the average American to try a, a diabetes solution? I think that's another thing that's fueling our growth. The share of wallet that goes to engagement is gonna increase in the future. Big picture, I'd like to see us become, you know, the dominant member and patient engagement company in the in the country.
0: Hey. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Really appreciate it, sure,
1: sure, glad to be here, thanks.